You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl Season 10. We've made it to Season 10, you guys. We're here. We haven't killed each other. The podcast is still mostly in one piece. I still can't believe we're on Season 10. This is, it just blows my brain. If you haven't heard about it yet, buy our book, Women of Myth. It's pretty dope. Because that will also help us keep the lights on. But I am so excited because season 10 is the season of ancient natural disasters. So literally this entire, the fact that we've made it to season 10 is like mind blowing. And now I'm just going to blow more things up all season. We might not make it out of season 10 is the caveat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Bronze Age does not. Spoiler. (laughs) Things don't go great for the Bronze Age in this season. (laughs) Or many other ages. Even more ancient than the Bronze Age. And not in the Mediterranean. But... Today, we're going to dive into one of my favorite natural or supernatural disaster stories from the ancient world. As I've said many times, growing up Catholic, I have maybe some trauma about the things I learned. (laughs) Jen has a little bit of Catholic trauma in her background. I might. Um, But growing up Catholic, the story of the plague, the 10 plagues of Egypt, was one that literally haunted me. I have always had a vivid imagination, shocker, and I can remember the first time I heard this story, being way too young and feeling immediately traumatized. The story of the Ten Plagues of Egypt is featured in both Jewish and Christian mythology, and as I said, it has haunted me for a long time. As a child, because I was indoctrinated in a faith that retold the story yearly around Easter Passover season. As an adult, the story haunted me as I started to pull back the curtain on this myth and think deeper about the roots of it. Could the story be based in some ancient psychic trauma that caused an epic mythology to build up around it? And if it was based in an ancient trauma, what exactly was that trauma? And I know Jen very well. I know that what we're going to say here is it was a volcano. (laughs) Spoilers. We're going to just throw out a disclaimer here. This episode is not about whether or not these plagues were real or if the Bible was real. The Bible is just a Bronze Age myth like all other Bronze Age myths, in my opinion. It's not that interesting a debate for us to engage in. We are a secular podcast. We're not here to debate whose religion is and isn't true. 
I have complicated feelings about it that I'm not going to discuss on this podcast. So I think it's okay to be someone who grew up in something, was indoctrinated in something, and have complicated feelings, and also to be a historian or a mythographer or whatever it is we are at this point. I mean, at this point, I guess we're sort of historians. I'm not sure. I still describe myself as a rando who watches a lot of documentaries. That's the extent of my qualifications. <laughs> I'm like a lay historian, a lay mythographer, but... A gentleman scholar, shall we say. <laughs> a gentle lady scholar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but as someone who has like slightly more than average knowledge, like one of the things that I'm really fascinated about when we look to mythology is what it can tell us about the time period and the people. And we've done this in many different places before. So I kind of feel like this is absolutely no different. We are interested in exploring this story to see what it can tell us about a certain time period, a certain people, a certain volcanic event, perhaps. And what gaps mythology can fill when the historical records are thin on the ground, because that's really interesting here. Like, that's what I find interesting is how mythology has been used historically, especially for cultures that did not have writing, to preserve histories. You know, like, your history is easier to remember when you make a flashy story out of it. Exactly. And the episode I'm working on as we record this has to do with another ancient volcanic event and oral history. It's not written down anywhere. And it's really interesting how the stories change and how they're different. Yeah. So we're interested in delving into what the Ten Plagues mythology tells us about a people, and in this case, an event. There has been a lot of scholarship in recent years about what event this myth might be referring to. It's possible that the story of the Ten Plagues of Egypt could have been based on an actual real event that happened, a natural disaster that decimated the ancient Mediterranean. And that is what this episode is going to do, delve into an ancient disaster. Because regardless of your beliefs, this is a Bronze Age myth, just like any other Bronze Age myth. And it has a lot to tell us about the people, culture, and disasters of this time period. So here we go. Let's talk about some mythical plagues. So first, Jenny, what exactly do you know about the Ten Plagues of Egypt? Jen and I have done a Patreon drunk myth on this in the past. It was a video, and Jen was just telling me what the plagues were. Um, it wasn't much deeper than that. And um, so what I know about the plagues is I know vaguely what they were and that a large percentage of them are things you could potentially put on a pizza. No, no. Only if you wanted to eat the grossest pizza in the world. Locusts. You can put locusts on a pizza. Boils. <laughs> right. This is <laughs> the 10 plagues pizza shack. Snakes. I know snakes weren't a plague, but they technically could have been a plague because there was a plague of wild beasts. And I guess snakes are a beast. Also, like, you know, pepperoni is a beast, right? <laughs> I don't think pepperoni was a plague. <laughs> Bacon pigs could have been. That, that could have been the plague. They're very un unspecific about one of those plagues. True. So I just thought we would like lay the groundwork for I think most people who grew up religious know kind of what they were. Some of you might have seen the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie or the more recent Christian Bale Exodus movie. There's also the wonderful cartoon The Prince of Egypt from I think the late 90s, early 2000s. Essentially, these plagues in this story exist a lot in pop culture. We're not going to go as far as the parting of the Red Sea in this episode, although there are theories on that. But we are going to tell you all about these plagues, what they would have looked like, and the science behind them. Right. So let's dive into this myth. The ten plagues of Egypt make up a key part of Exodus, 
Exodus is the second book of the Torah and the Old Testament, and it deals with the story of the Israelites and their flight from Egypt to escape slavery by the Egyptians. This account is considered by historians to be mythical, as the historical record does not back up the account of the Torah or Old Testament. In recent years, it has been uncovered that enslaved Israelites didn't build the pyramids, for example, lending a lot of understanding that these books are Bronze Age myths. Yeah, and I'm not saying that Israelites weren't in this area at this time period. There is evidence that they were. It's more like that they weren't enslaved to build the pyramids that has been uncovered. I believe, Jenny, you were telling me about this. So again, we're not saying they weren't in the area. They weren't living in this area. It's kind of just the pyramid myth that's been debunked. We know a lot about about how the pyramids were built now that I think we didn't know in previous decades. There's really interesting scholarship on this now. I would love to do a deep dive maybe on the Patreon at some point. Um, But this is a story for another day. Anyway, so according to the biblical story... The ancient Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. The book of Exodus deals with their flight from Egypt and their wandering in the desert as they searched for a home. It's both simple and very complicated in terms of a story, but for our purposes, that's the background that you need to know. So the story of the Ten Plagues of Egypt takes place towards the end of the time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. How the Israelites came to be in Egypt is a story that stretches back for generations. And for the purposes of this episode, isn't important to our story. I have seen in some documentaries, like, a case being made for how long they got there and how it may or may not be related to other things in the Bible. It's it's not really important. That's not what we're going down here. The important part has to do with how the Israelites were finally granted the freedom to leave Egypt. And that has to do with a guy named Moses, his brother Aaron, and ten pretty gruesome plagues. So Moses, yes, that Moses. He was a survivor of a cull of young children, particularly boys, that happened when he was a baby. When Moses was born, the enslaved population of Israelites was starting to get too numerous. So just to be clear, because I don't know this off the top of my head, Moses was an enslaved Israelite. He was a baby born to a woman who was enslaved. Yes, his brother Aaron, and he had a sister named Miriam. He was born uh, to a, an Israelite family who was enslaved, and his mother was like, no, I'm not losing my kid. So the pharaoh at this point in time was looking around at his population of enslaved Israelites, and he was getting very, very nervous. It's almost like he knew slavery was a bad thing and that I don't know. He thought if there were enough enslaved people, they could like rise up and overthrow his oppressive regime and maybe he shouldn't have too many of them. You see this a few times, particularly in the Old Testament and going into the New Testament, right? Like, we know in the mythology of Jesus, right, there's a calling. The Herod calls newborn boys in particular. He was not a, a great dude in the Bible. So this is something that you see. It's, I think it's a literary device in the Bible. This calling of firstborn boys is going to come back later in the plagues. I've read some criticism and stuff about this that says, like, this is like a literary framing device more than anything. It also gives Moses an epic backstory, and it's going to give him, uh, as we'll see, a foot in both the camp of the people he was born to, the Israelites, and also the Egyptians. So this is like, you know, in in Moses's backstory, when he was a baby, the pharaoh um, had decided that they had an overpopulation of enslaved people, and he ordered that all newborn Hebrew boys were to be slaughtered. Moses's mother was determined that this is not going to happen to her kid. No, Instead, she hid him in a basket in the reeds near the Nile, and he floated down the river, and his cries caught the attention of one of the pharaoh's daughters. She rescued him and raised him as an Egyptian prince. 
So Moses spent the rest of his childhood and early adulthood as a very highly privileged member of the Egyptian elite. Eventually, he reconnected with his Hebrew roots and worked to free his people from slavery. Moses heard the voice of God, who told him that it was his job to help free the Israelites from slavery. And after a series of talks between Moses and the Pharaoh broke down because he went to the Pharaoh and was like, hey, you know, could you do me a solid and free my people from slavery? And the Pharaoh was like, fuck no. God and Moses went nuclear and unleashed the 10 plagues on all of Egypt. And these plagues decimated and destroyed the landscape and the Egyptian people. They are dramatic and they are epic. And honestly, I can see how Jen did not escape her childhood unscathed of trauma. (laughs) Particularly when you know I have this ridiculous imagination. (laughs) I mean, I think what's traumatic about, about this story to a child is that it just seems to have no moral boundaries. You know, like all these horrible things happen to people and animals who had nothing to do with these decisions, right? Like there are, there are people who, who are punished and who died who have nothing to do with this Pharaoh's decision about about these enslaved people. It's like just God can just punish you for anything that somebody decides far away and, you know, outside of your sphere and there's nothing you could do about it. I mean, that's a terrifying message. It is. It's also, you know, one of those things where um, it's like, well, it's because they didn't believe in the one true God. They believed in all these gods and that's why they get punished. And I'm like, Sure, but nobody's preaching to the Egyptian people about the one true God, so they don't have a choice to make up their mind. I mean, I also I also feel like that's really a harmful message, this idea that, like, the missionaries have to go forth and tell everybody about Jesus, and then if they choose not to accept Jesus, then it's their fault that they get smoten. No, the missionaries don't need to go and talk to indigenous people and tell them how their lifestyle is terrible. And they're going to hell. No. Yeah. And I'm only talking as like a six-year-old who was indoctrinated into that, right? So as a six-year-old, my compassion is, but these people don't know. Why are they being, they don't have a choice. They don't know any better. As an adult, my logic is exactly what Jenny's. It's like, I'm sorry, missionaries need to what? No, 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 no. God shouldn't, this is not the way to get converts, man. Sorry. This is just being a dick to everyone. I'm so attracted to your faith now that you've killed half my family. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see, like, why people would be very angry at your God or you in general. And it's just it's just traumatic. And to me, what it says is a lot less about a religion and more about a series of events that were completely out of control and unexplainable to the people who were experiencing them. Nothing is fair in the Old Testament. It's all just really brutal. And I kind of love it for that reason, because it feels more true to how life would have been at that time. Whereas the New Testament, it is also brutal, but it's like, it's like sanded down a little. Yeah, and this myth is is basically, you know, in hindsight, putting a story on it that made some kind of logical sense and attempted to apply some kind of moral framework to it that at least made the world a more understandable place. Like, I could see that being true. The people who are telling us the story have a vested interest in the way that they're telling that story. It's all leading to their God delivering them from slavery, from bondage, and setting them on the path to find their homeland. We're not getting the story from the Egyptians' point of view. There is one place where we hear a little bit about what it would have looked like for the Egyptians, but this isn't really written down in Egyptian history. So, the ten plagues of Egypt are, in order, blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, diseased livestock, boils, fiery hail, locusts, darkness, and the killing of the firstborn. It's quite the collection of terrible things happening. 
In the biblical story, each of these plagues are sent by God to force the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. And each time, no matter how bad the plagues get, the Pharaoh does not allow them to leave. He just does not. According to the story, this is because God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will not allow him to make the sensible decision to free the Israelites. So actually, God is in fact the real asshole here. Am I the asshole? I hardened Pharaoh's heart so that I could continue my whole plague thing for my own particular idiom, thus continuing the suffering of the Israelites and the Egyptians. Am I, in fact, the asshole? And the internet says yes. God. Again, am I, in fact, just nature in a natural disaster that can't be explained? Because that's at a certain point, I'm just like, yeah. You just can't explain it. And that's what you're doing here. Is the volcano the asshole here? <laughs> the volcano's going to volcano. It took a long time to build up that magma chamber and to let out that explosive release. The volcano put a lot of work into this, okay? It really did. <laughs> so, as the story escalates, each plague gets progressively more dire, turning Egypt into a post-apocalyptic hellscape. I'm sorry, I sound way too excited, but also... I love a big volcano. <laughs> she loves a good hellscape. That's what she loves. So the entire time that I read or heard this story as a kid, I just kept thinking, why? Why doesn't the Pharaoh let the Israelites go? Well, it's because God is an asshole and he hardened his heart. Yeah. And I was like, what kind of God would be so cruel both to the Israelites who must also be suffering during this, these plagues and the people of Egypt? Like, what did they do to deserve all these disasters? They're not decision makers. The entire morality of this is just bullshit. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's this disconnect, Jenny, that we're talking about right now. This like I, my brain couldn't wrap around it. That for me led me into investigating the archaeological evidence for these plagues. Because this story feels like it's not just about a wrathful God answering the prayers of one people. It feels like it's a story of a trauma, a story that can't be explained and can only be documented, and in this case, mythologized. And that somewhere that documentation got elaborated on, mythologized, because all of these plagues can be explained in a way, in a fashion. Scientists, archaeologists, Historians, mythographers, even biblical scholars have all looked into the roots of these plagues and found that all of them can be explained with sometimes tinfoil or dubious theories. Well, I mean, I would say that like those explanations are, are some of them are more of a reach than others, but I think all of them are at least theoretically possible. Like, I don't think this is like tinfoil woo-woo, it was aliens that did it situation. It's not tinfoil woo-woo, it was aliens, because there are all natural causes, including climate change, natural phenomena, and my favorite volcanic eruption, that answer the question of what we're seeing in these plagues. And they're all things that happened in this area at different points in time. Having a natural disaster at the root of this really makes sense to me just from a storytelling perspective, because that's the only way the arbitrary morality of this story makes sense, because a really big natural disaster, of course, is amoral. It visits punishment on people who did nothing to deserve it. And sometimes those punishments are ongoing and multiply on each other. So if these are a people who have a religious worldview, they're going to continually be asking, what did we do to deserve this? Like, what is the possible story and framework we can put on this to make our universe make sense again? And that's, that seems to be what's going on here. And I'm, I'm going to say this, all natural disasters have domino effects that change the ecosystem, whether it's a tsunami or a flood or a hurricane, and they all change the ecosystem after they happen. 
there was a big flood down in Wilmington where my family lives. And afterwards, there was like an influx of things like spiders and snakes going in places they don't normally go. Well, that's because their uh, environment shifted. The reality is all natural disasters shift the ecosystem and bring some strange changes that you can't explain. We can explain it now. Back then, they couldn't. So our working theory here is that the story of the 10 plagues, while it may be mythological, may have been based on things that really happened during an ancient natural disaster. And surprise, some researchers think that all indications point to that natural disaster being the volcanic eruption of Thera or the climate change that happened slightly later. Right, because that climate change was caused by the volcanic eruption of Thera. Like you said, it all had a compounding effect. Yes, it was It was definitely exacerbated. There was also another volcano in Alaska that they think may have also caused massive climate change around this time as well. I mean, this is all tied to the um, Bronze Age collapse. People like to call it the decline nowadays because it did happen over a few centuries. But all the climate change that was caused over centuries by this massive volcanic eruption that completely changed the environment of the Mediterranean and really affected a lot of people. It's really interesting, the idea that the Ten Plagues story is a mythologized way of documenting that tragedy or that that event, because we also see this in Greek myths, right? Like, there's a lot of points in Greek mythology that Jen and I have talked about on the podcast before that historians and mythographers have traced back to things that went on with the Bronze Age collapse or had to do with remnants of the Bronze Age collapse that people in a later time were trying to make sense of. So that kind of puts, you know, a lot of stories from the Old Testament on par with Greek myths. They were both trying to deal with and process the same event. And that's really profound to me. It's so profound and it's so important. So this theory that we've been talking about is that all of the plagues can be described as happening as part of a domino effect stemming from the volcanic eruption of Thera and then spreading through to a period of climate change that happened for centuries afterwards. In an article for Slate called A Skeptic's Guide to Passover, Michael David Lucas lays out the domino plague theory very succinctly. Quote, The Nile turns to blood, all the fish die, frogs are brought forth abundantly, and so on. Drawing on theology, Egyptology, and biology, epidemiologist John Marr developed a domino theory to explain each of the ten plagues in order. Marr believes the plagues were a series of natural disasters and diseases triggered by a bloom of waterborne organisms called dinoflagellates. The dinoflagellates turned the Nile red and killed the frog-eating fish, which in turn caused a population explosion among the frogs. The tainted water eventually killed the frogs, causing lice and flies to run rampant, which led to a number of animal diseases, including African horse sickness and an outbreak of boils or fancy glanders, whatever that is. This reign of disaster and disease continued through hail, locusts, and sandstorms until the death of the firstborn sons, which Marr thinks was caused by grain infected with myotoxins. Others, building on Marr's domino theory, argued that the plagues were triggered by the eruption of the Greek island of Santorini, which is the Thera eruption, causing a string of disasters such as those that occurred at Lake Nios in Cameroon in 1986. So, in a nutshell... Don't worry, we'll explain it later. The Lake Nias. <laughs> We're going to spend the rest of the episode unpacking this. So, <laughs> in a nutshell, that is the theory that explains the 10 plagues of Egypt. And we'll go through each of the plagues and break down the historical evidence on the ground to explain how this plague might have happened or looked. Because these plagues are very clearly a recounting of a psychic trauma, one that really happened and couldn't be explained at the time. 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The epic first plague of Egypt is the Plague of Blood. And I'm going to quote from the open source royalty-free Wikipedia entry for all these biblical passages. I'm not even going to feel bad about using it. It's open source. I can quote as much as I want. And the language is pretty epic. And it's fascinating to be able to lay this language out this way and break this down using the source material. And then my friend science. And we can relive little Jen's trauma (laughs) hearing these words again. (laughs) I support this. Let's relive Jen's trauma. (laughs) So quote, this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hands, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And Moses is saying that. Or sometimes Aaron's saying it, but I believe that time Moses is. He's, he's reporting what God is saying, right? Yes, he's saying what God is saying. He's the mouthpiece. So the first plague is essentially turning all the water in the Nile to blood. Uh, It's real hardcore metal shit. Moses strikes his staff on the ground and boom, instant blood. But how likely is it that water could have been turned into blood? Well, it's actually pretty likely that this water into blood thing happened sort of during Egypt's ancient history. And there are several really interesting theories about when and why this could have happened. As you've all guessed, my favorite theory goes all the way back to the 1600s BC and the eruption of the Thera volcano on the Greek island of Santorini. And y'all know I've been wanting to talk about this eruption for literal years. And this season, I believe at the very end of the season, I'm going to talk about the eruption, but not yet. That's not this episode. Instead, we'll be skirting around the fallout of this eruption for most of this episode, Because even though the Thera eruption was like 500 to 650 miles away from the northern part of Egypt, the long-ranging effects of this eruption were felt globally. The Thera eruption on the island of Santorini took place between 1625 and 1600 BC. And the dates are a little fuzzy and a lot hotly debated. This was an epic eruption. It is one of the biggest volcanic events in human history and the fallout from that eruption Ash and other volcanic material is used as a way to age and mark all other archaeological sites in the Mediterranean. Essentially, this eruption was so big and so widespread that it has its own layer in geological history. And I'm sorry, I just have to pause for a minute. Okay, I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm okay. Are you okay? I don't know. I've wanted to talk about this for so long. It has its own layer in geological history. She's not upset about this. She's happy. Well, I'm both upset and happy. Like, thinking about how awful and how widespread that destruction was and how many people it killed, it's deeply upsetting. But it's also super fascinating. I think that your fascination with this is kind of similar to your fascination with true crime. It's like, oh my god, this could happen to me. I need to delve into it immediately. And then then you just get a little bit morbidly fascinated with it. I do. And, it, you know, I think my fascination with it is it's growing up having been quite religious, which which we talked about. 
this idea that there are these huge forces outside of us that we have absolutely no control over and there's nothing we can do to stop it and feeling that small and scared and terrified. So wanting to delve in and understand how it works uh, to try to give some sense of like, I have control or knowledge and that could help. I mean, it wouldn't. There's nothing that can help when you have these cataclysmic events. So the Thera eruption decimated the Minoan settlements on Santorini and Akrotiri. They were buried in ash, freezing them in time like Pompeii. And it is my dream to go to Santorini at some point in time with Jenny and go to Akrotiri. I'm like, I can't wait one day. So this event is believed to have been the beginning of the Bronze Age collapse. If you want to be dramatic, the Bronze Age decline if you want to be less dramatic. The Bronze Age would continue to decline for many years, but this cataclysmic eruption is often viewed as an inciting incident that led to climate change, food scarcity, and other problems that escalated the Bronze Age decline over the next few hundred years. This eruption produced mega tsunamis that devastated the coast of every Mediterranean country, and its effects were felt and documented as far away as China. It is mentioned in the Bamboo Annals and its volcanic lightning is described in the Egyptian Tempest Stele. And sure, this eruption changed the landscape for the ancient world. Needless to say, it had the power to significantly change the water of the Nile. I mean, that would have been child's play. Contaminating it. Genesene documentaries claiming that the ash would have had a sulfuric or even iron-like taste. I.e., the waters of the Nile would have tasted like blood. So... The going theory is the volcanic eruption of Thera would have caused widespread contamination of the Nile River. In an article on the Biomedical Scientist by Dr. Stephen Mortlock, this theory is laid out like this, quote, Trevisanato, in his 2005 book, The Plagues of Egypt, Archaeology, History, and Science, Look at the Bible, suggested this eruption was also the trigger event for the plagues. There are indicators that the environmental effects of this eruption were felt around the globe, some scholars have also linked this eruption to the legend of Atlantis. Trevisanato believes that volcanic ash tainted the Nile, causing it to become acidic, and sediments found at the bottom of lakes along the Nile Delta seem to suggest that there was deposit of volcanic ash sometime during the Middle Bronze Age, which would be in line with the eruption on the Greek volcanic island. In a pre-industrial ancient Egypt, sulfates from a massive volcanic fallout would provide the simplest and most plausible scientific explanation for this contamination. A red acidic Nile would have killed the fish, kept people from drinking from the water, and, according to contemporary records, caused burns, which later became infected with larvae. So, that is one of the more probable causes for the Nile River turning to blood and also giving people boils. So that ties in. But there are other theories. The other theories have to do with global climate change, potentially, again, as a result of this volcanic eruption. The volcanic eruption does seem to be at the seed of a lot of this. It just could have played out in different ways. The red algae theory is another popular explanation for the first plague. Many scientists now believe that the 10 plagues might be an allegory to explain climate change that happened in the ancient city of Pyramses on the Nile Delta. The city of Pyramses was abandoned around 3,000 years ago. Could this have been the epicenter of the plagues of Egypt? Some people think so, because this area of the Nile Delta underwent a period of significant climate change during the reign of Pharaoh Ramses II, who ruled from 1279 BC to 1213 BC. Towards the end of this Pharaoh's reign, the climate shifted from warm and wet to a dry period, and this made the conditions right for the first plague, the blood plague. 
I don't mention it anywhere else, but it's very probable that any kind of rain that would have been coming down at this point in time wouldn't have been fresh water. It would have been contaminated from ash. And that's part of what we're seeing. So the burgundy blood algae is a toxic algae. It grows very quickly in warm, fresh water. Theoretically, due to the climate change, it could have multiplied rapidly in the Nile during this time. This bacterium still exists today, just like it did 3,000 years ago. This bacterium stains the water red as it dies, turning the waters of the Nile red, like blood, and poisoning everything in the river. This is a quote that explains the process from a live science article called The Science of the Ten Plagues. Quote, This phenomenon is known as red tide when it happens in oceans, but red algae are also well represented in freshwater ecosystems. And these algae blooms can certainly be harmful to wildlife, as the algae contain a toxin that can accumulate in shellfish and poison the animals that feed on them. Fumes from densely concentrated algae blooms can also disperse toxins in the air, causing breathing problems in people that live nearby. So, the picture of what happened to the Nile is starting to form. Either the Nile was stained red from a volcanic eruption which made the water turn acidic, or potentially, several hundred years after a volcanic eruption, there was significant climate change, potentially again brought about by this eruption, which changed the climate from wet and warm to dry. This might have led to a red algae infestation that had devastating effects for the people of Egypt. Both theories are potentially realistic and fascinating. Which brings us to the second plague and one of my personal favorites, frogs. You can put frogs on a pizza. Don't put frogs on pizza. Well, some people eat frog legs. I mean, it's part of the cuisine in some areas. Don't put frogs on my pizza. I really love frogs. I love frogs and turtles and penguins. Me too, but I'm just pointing out this is the first of the plagues that you can put on a pizza if you need a thing to put on a pizza. Then you want it to be plague-centric. Look, you could put blood algae on a pizza. I wouldn't recommend it. It's toxic, but you could. Don't put blood algae on a pizza. <laughs> I can't believe I have to come down on that. <laughs> I have created this monster. It's time to yeah, put yeah. it to bed. Anyway, moving on. So this is what the biblical story tells us. Again, this is a quote from open source translation on Wikipedia. I love this one. Quote, this is the best. This is my favorite, Jen. Quote, this is what the great Lord says. Lord is in caps. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Not the officials! Don't put frogs on my officials! <laughs> <laughs> right. So now we are at the great frogging of it all. And yes, I made up that word. The frogging. We were at the great frogging of it all, and I made up that word, and I just am going to use it as much as I can in modern parlance and conversation. So this plague always seemed very weird to young Jen and, and even current Jen. I like the part about how the frogs will go up on all your officials. All of them. <laughs> but, and I, I texted Jenny at like... <laughs> midnight a few times about the frogging uh, because I was so excited with what I found of the research because digging into the research this whole frogging makes total sense with the fish and water being defiled by the red algae or the volcanic ash the frogs which can live between water and land they're amphibians 
would have left the Nile and its tributaries, which were polluted, and they would have invaded the homes, streets, and cities of Egypt. Frogs are a very sensitive indicator species. They're often uh, the early indicators of a climactic or ecosystem problem. But there's more. Because I could literally hear Jenny's voice asking me, but why were there so many more frogs than usual, and how did they appear so quickly? There were now no natural predators for the frogs, or the mosquitoes, or the lice, because they'd been killed off in the poison river, theoretically. Science tells us why the frog population exploded, and it is fascinating. This is a quote from that biomedical scientist article again. Quote, A bloom in the water would have killed the fish, allowing amphibians to breed unchecked as fish eat their eggs. Studies have also shown that tadpoles, when stressed because of a change in their environment, quickly develop into frogs. The toxic water would have caused the amphibians to leave and swarm over the land in overwhelming numbers. The amphibians would have stayed away from the deadly river, and many would have died, leading to the third plague, lice. And this could mean lice, fleas, or gnats, based on the Hebrew word kininim. I'm sorry if I've pronounced that wrong. If toxic algae led to the first plague and dead frogs followed, it is not surprising that a swarm of insects would also follow. Essentially, Jenny, the stress of the climate change from the river being polluted meant that the frogs quickly went from being little baby tadpoles into full-grown frogs in rapid succession. The plague made more frogs. My mind is blown. That is amazing. Right? I still can't get over the plague made the frogs. There's more wild frog facts here to share. Neither of us are over the frogging at the moment. The frogging continues to happen. So returning to the live science article, there is a history of the phenomenon of frogs raining from the sky. I don't know if it mentions frogs raining from the sky in the Bible, does it? I think it depends on your translation, but I do feel like there is like I've seen it depicted as frogs raining from the sky. Like in a in the movie Sharknado, I don't know where that comes from. Well, let's let's see what uh, Live Science has to say. Uh, quote: As it happens, the phenomenon of raining frogs has been reported multiple times throughout history and in a range of locations around the world. A report published July twelfth, eighteen seventy three, in Scientific American, which is quite a long time ago, described quote within the quote a shower of frogs which darkened the air and covered the ground for a long distance following a recent rainstorm. This account was one of dozens of similar anecdotes collected in The Book of the Damned from 1919, although its somewhat skeptical author suggested that the frogs may have simply dropped from trees, which is weird, because why are the frogs in trees? Tree frogs? There, there are whole species of frogs that live in trees. Yeah, but I was thinking of, you know, river frogs. Tree frogs that are evolved to go in trees don't en masse drop from the trees. They know how to hang out in the trees. That just makes it weirder. Unless you had a quick temperature drop and they froze and then dropped on you. Like iguanas do that in Florida sometimes. Moving on. And in May 2010, we're continuing with this quote. In Greece, thousands of frogs emerged from a lake in the northern part of the country, likely in search of food, and disrupted traffic for days, CBS News reported. So I've also seen just history stuff I've been reading about uh, frogs dropping from the sky and it raining frogs. And one of the causes I've seen is water spouts, sucking frogs out of a body of water and then dropping them everywhere, which is weird because it's like, okay, I get that that might happen. But then why does it also happen with like fish and newts and other animals that are in the water? It's just a weird phenomenon that I don't think we fully understand. Two things. First off, a water spout is like a water tornado. 
Second thing, I would assume it's because sometimes frogs are closer to the surface and maybe easier to pick up because they're amphibians. You could get newts too. Maybe the, maybe newts are just like considered like the same as frogs, even though they're not. Like they're just like not counting them in the same way. You know what? I don't know. Don't look at me. So anyway, the plague of frogs does kind of check out throughout history, right? The poison river would have killed off fish that usually ate frog eggs, and environmental stress would have caused tadpoles to grow into frogs more quickly. That led to just more frogs in general, and they would have fled the poison river as soon as they could because the river was poisoned, coming up on land and up onto all the officials. And looking for water, which they wouldn't be able to find. Right, and that's why many of them would have died off. Particularly if it's very dry and hot as opposed to wet and hot. Or if it's wet and hot and the water that is raining down and the rain is acidic. Yeah, so this would have looked almost supernatural to the people of Egypt. And me. (laughs) And little traumatized Jen. And the loss of these frogs would bring even more problems for the people and animals in the area. And that brings us to the next plague, lice. So again, this is the open source translation from Wikipedia from the book of Exodus. Quote, And the Lord said, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all of Egypt. When Aaron stretched out his hand with the rod and struck the dust of the ground, lice came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became lice. So... I've seen in several places this could either be lice or flies, depending on the translation. But it makes sense that with all those frogs both exploding in population and then dying quite rapidly, it's not surprising that the lice and fly populations also exploded. Because once the frogs were gone, the major predator of these species had also died out because frogs eat flies and lice. Again, that Live Science article breaks down the domino effect. Quote, Interestingly, both body lice and fleas can theoretically transmit the bacteria Yersinia pestis, which causes bubonic plague. According to a 2010 study published in the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases, if so, then an infestation with lice could have set the stage for the later plagues, such as boils. A 2008 review of plague science found. Scientists have also argued that the sickness that killed the beasts of the field for Egyptians in later plagues might have been blue tongue or African horse sickness, both of which can be spread by insects from this plague, according to a 2008 Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. Our book, Women of Myth, is out in bookshops and online. It's available worldwide in hardback, ebook, and audio. Women of Myth tells the stories of 50 exceptional heroines, goddesses, and monsters in world mythology. It's beautifully illustrated by Sarah Richard, and it makes the perfect gift for yourself or someone else who happens to love mythology. Look for Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So to recap, we've had toxic water which led to an outbreak of frogs, frogs who then died pretty quickly and left the flies and lice to multiply and plague Egypt. These plagues are all setting the stage for later plagues, particularly the 5th and the 10th plagues, both of which are illnesses that fell to animals and then humans. But we're not there quite yet. Let's move on to the next plague, which was wild beasts. So, this is what Wikipedia tells us about the next plague, the plague of wild beasts, or sometimes flies. I have real questions about that, but we'll get to it. Quote, 
The fourth plague of Egypt was of creatures capable of harming people and livestock. Is this a quote from the actual Bible? No, this is just a quote from Wikipedia. They didn't have the full quote for this on there. Okay. So anyway, this is a a summary from Wikipedia. Quote, The fourth plague of Egypt was of creatures capable of harming people and livestock. The Bible tells us that the plagues only came against the Egyptians and did not affect the Israelites. Pharaoh asked Moses to remove this plague and promised to grant the Israelites their freedom. However, after the plague was gone, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he refused to keep his promise. And this is where some translations believe or some, I guess, scholars believe that God caused the hardening of the heart. It is translated differently in different places. And that's why I've I've given you the summary quote instead of several longer quotes. This plague, as I said, is tricky. I've seen it listed as a few things. Some translations call this a plague of snakes or hornets, scorpions, mosquitoes, lions, bears, or even wolves. Most of that you could put on a pizza. You could. I wouldn't, but you could. Mosquitoes is a stretch, but everything else could go on a pizza. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these are endangered. I I don't think I would. Right. I mean, I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying, theoretically, if you're keeping count of how many of the plagues you can put on a pizza, which I absolutely am... (laughs) So it all depends on the translation, and it's unclear exactly what these beasts were. What we do know is that they descended on Egypt and really terrorized the people and the landscape. And in theory, whatever these beasts were, they were probably driven out of their normal environment due to the pollution of the Nile River and all its tributaries. This would have led to them seeking a new environment where they could find ready food and clean water, and sometimes that food is humans. This would have brought these animals into close contact with humans, even if these animals or creatures were normally human-shy, like snakes or crocodiles. However, there's another theory that later scholars think that this might have actually been a plague of flies, because based on the domino theory, that also makes a lot of sense. So the biomedical scientist explains why it's important and likely that this plague was indeed a plague of flies. This This is the theory. Quote, Studies have shown that cattle heavily infested with stable flies can become anemic and have lower milk yields. The stable fly also bites humans and could have led to the boils that occurred as part of the sixth plague. In many parts of the world, the species is a carrier of trypanosomid parasites, including Trypanosoma evansi and Trypanosoma brucei. I'm probably mispronouncing that. There would have also been an increase in the common housefly. Uh, which belongs to a group of flies often referred to as filth flies. The housefly has been in existence since the origin of human life, is well adapted to life in human habitations, and acts as a potential vector of disease. A recent study found that over 100 pathogens, including bacteria such as E. coli and S. aureus, viruses, fungi, and parasites have been associated with this prolific insect, so it is not surprising that people would have been suffering from increased illnesses. So, assuming it was a plague of flies, that is, in fact, the plague of beasts, shit is getting very messy here, literally. Flies are everywhere. The cities of Egypt are, at this time, possibly filthy because of the sanitation conditions in the contaminated water and all the dead frogs, etc. The weather has also changed. It's no longer wet and warm. As we've said, it's now dry. There's no rain or fresh water to wash away contamination. It's all getting very, very grim here. I I have some doubts about whether we could call the plague of wild beasts, in fact, a plague of flies, because I feel like that was the last plague, right? Like, I'm not able to translate from, you know, Hebrew or ancient Greek or whatever language this is coming from, so I'm really not speaking from a place of knowledge there. But I don't know if you can actually 
mistranslate beasts as flies and most people wouldn't refer to flies as a beast like it, it doesn't make sense like i feel like to me the researchers are getting too hung up on the order of things i totally agree and i think the reality is there would have just been more beasts that would have come in, into contact with humans that they probably wouldn't have seen before because resources are scarce like that's enough like what's going on in the order of these plagues is enough to drive animals that do not normally interact or interact sparingly with humans into contact with them. A lot of livestock is dying due to the plagues and a lot of people are dying due to the plagues. That would bring in a lot of scavenger animals, crocodiles who are potentially fleeing from the river. You could get hyenas, vultures, maybe wolves and lions who normally they're predators, but they also scavenge, right? Like this is all possible. And maybe the general wild beasts is used as opposed to naming what animal because it was many different kinds of animals. That's my thought. I totally agree with you. I also wanted to add here that at the time, there may not have been any rainwater coming down due to climate change because volcanic clouds affect air pressure. So a few years ago, there was a volcano erupting in Iceland. At the time I was in the UK, it erupted for several months. And I remember when it erupted, um, the skies were unnaturally blue without any clouds and there was no rain. And it was really odd and very still. So it's probable that there wasn't any rain. If there was rain, it might have been contaminated from the ash cloud or the entire pressure system of rain that would have fallen in this area could have been changed. And this has to do with the wild beasts because the wild beasts are going to come into contact with humans who potentially have more resources that they want or are looking pretty tasty. They might not want to eat those humans, but now they have no choice. And also, as Jenny said, humans are also, forgive the pun, dropping like flies because there is, their resources are now limited for them. They may not be buried correctly at the time, you know, properly to avoid scavenger animals. So it's kind of a buffet if you are a scavenger animal. Different, um, you know, climate pressures would drive wild beasts of different kinds potentially into areas of human habitation looking for food and water. And I think that's really true. You know, it, it doesn't have to be flies. Like, all of this could be compounding. Exactly. And, you know, this is the part where I just wanted to stop and say, you know, it's at this plague here where I really am like, how is this evidence of, like, a just God and not just a natural disaster? Because how could you harden Pharaoh's heart so that, like, okay, just let your people endure some more stuff. To me, this is just evidence of trauma that can't be explained. And it really is just leading to uh, being the cause of a natural disaster. So shall we move on to the next plague? Yes, let's do it. Which is, what is it called? It's called diseased livestock. Yeah, it is. So once again, I'm going back to that epic, dramatic Exodus, <laughs> uh, quote for this plague, quote, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, and on your cattle and sheep and goats. Not the horses and donkeys. And the cattle and sheep and goats. This is arbitrary. This is not a just God. No. But we've been building towards this, Jenny, for a while. As I mentioned with the frogs and then the lice, the fact that the frog population was impacted by the plagues had a knock-on effect for the rest of the insects in the ecosystem. And this most likely led to an outbreak of disease-carrying insects. Interestingly, it must have had some effect on the spiders because we don't see anything about spiders multiplying. 
and they would have helped with the insect control. So one potential culprit for the diseased livestock is rinderpest. Rinderpest is a very lethal and highly infectious disease that mainly affects cattle. Its mortality rate is around 80%. It's thought to have originated in Asia about 5,000 years ago and traveled to Africa along the prehistoric trade routes, meaning this virus would have been in Egypt during this time period. Rinderpest causes high fevers, diarrhea, and mouth and nose ulcers. It is highly contagious and spread through the air, breast milk of these animals, and fecal matter, etc. And remember, it's not just animals, like baby animals, drinking the breast milk. A lot of that breast milk would have been used to make dairy products that humans would have consumed that is now contaminated. During this period of the plagues, fresh water was probably hard to come by. So it's likely that animals and humans were drinking contaminated water, washing in contaminated water, and spreading diseases rapidly. And it's possible that maybe humans were relying on, you know, cow's milk because they needed something to drink and the water wasn't drinkable. I was thinking the same thing. So things are getting pretty dire in Egypt. All the livestock are dying and diseased. The water is contaminated. The flies are everywhere. The frogs are all up on your officials. All up on them. It's about time for all of this horror to spill over into the next plague. Everybody's favorite pizza topping, boils. So here's what Exodus tells us about the infamous boils. Quote, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, quote within the quote, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out in men and animals throughout the land. We finally reached the boils, and I have no idea why. I do. I do know why. I'm morbidly curious, aren't I? But I am totally fascinated by them. And these aren't even my favorite plague. The fiery hail, as I've said several times, is my favorite plague. So let's talk about what might have caused a plague of boils. If you've been following closely, you can see that all of these plagues have a very clear cause and effect, each plague building on the one before, mapping out the course of an ecological disaster. So what were these boils exactly? Well, it's very likely that the boils were caused by all the insects that were running riot. Their bites could easily spread diseases, particularly smallpox, possibly Yersinia pestis. Smallpox is very infectious and causes raised blisters which could look boil-like. This is a quote from that Live Science article again. Quote, An outbreak of the highly infectious disease smallpox, which caused distinctive raised blisters, could result in a large number of people simultaneously coming down with rashes and welts. Smallpox is thought to have affected communities in Egypt at least 3,000 years ago based on evidence of smallpox scars found on several mummies dating back to this period, including the mummy of Pharaoh Ramses V, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's also possible that the boils were, I believe it's called fancy glanders. Sounds like a Monty Python sketch of some kind. It's an airborne disease that's spread by eating tainted meat. For example, all that diseased livestock and fish, or potentially by flies. So, fascinatingly, this story of the ten plagues is actually charting out the domino effect of a natural disaster that destroyed the water and brought about a series of ecosystem changes resulting in disease outbreaks in people. Boils, right? There is also evidence for this plague in the ground. This is a quote from the biomedical scientist, quote, In 1886, when the mummy of Tutmos II was unwrapped by Gaston Maspero, 
There were scars from some type of infection which were still visible even after being embalmed. Maspero described the mummy as being, quote, within the quote, scabrous in patches and covered with scars. Lesions covered the back, waist, arms, and legs of the body, and there was a mixture of papules, scabs, and scars. Had Thutmose II died of a disease spreading through the region at that time? Evidence suggests that the queen's nanny, Citraen, suffered from a similar condition. The details are very similar to descriptions of the Sixth Plague, where boils burst forth upon man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. And Jen also mentioned Yersinopestis, the bubonic plague, which also involved boils or large buboes that infected, I think, the uh, lymph nodes. And this was obviously a very nasty disease. And there's less evidence of this, but it's another possibility, especially with a plague of lice going on, which are historically, I think, fleas at least, are uh, carriers of this. Yeah, there would have been fleas as well as lice. We mentioned the fleas earlier. Yeah, fleas, flies, lice, like you can put that all in the same category, right? And on a pizza. Look, you can put boils on a pizza. We don't suggest it. But theoretically, none of this we suggest. We're just saying it's possible. So that is the boils. Let's talk about the fiery hail, which is Jen's favorite plague. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So again, we're quoting from that open source Exodus, here we go. Quote, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So needy. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Because, you know, they have their own people that they worship, you know. I mean, my feeling about God here is that he doesn't actually care about his people suffering in slavery so much as it's his people getting to worship him. That is the problem with God. Yes, sort of colonization and domination by religion. But anyway, quote, Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. The Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Okay, so this is super dramatic, right? This is why it's my favorite. So much thunder, so much lightning. Hail, hail on fire. How does hail get on fire? Because hail is ice chunks. How do ice chunks get on fire? One word, volcano. (laughs) So to me, this is where It is undeniable that we are talking about people telling the story of a volcanic eruption, one they couldn't understand or explain. Because fire hail is something you probably, is something you definitely see in a volcanic eruption. Raining of burning ash from a a volcanic eruption, people might mistake that from hail, right? But you also would have had hail as well. But yes, 
So the violent eruption of the Thera volcano could have led to, um, and this is a quote from the biomedical scientist again, quote, volcanic plume coupled with high velocity dust storms that could have rained down in Egypt, thereby turning days into nights and causing weather anomalies with increased precipitations and higher humidity. It is possible that when the volcanic ash mixed with thunderstorms above Egypt, it led to dramatic hailstorms. Hail on fire! Epic dramatic hailstorms filled with dust and ash, all of which is on fire, apparently. It would have looked apocalyptic. And there is some evidence that there was an event like this that happened with fiery dust and ash and hail raining down that was in fact recorded by the Egyptians. The Tempest Stele, or Storm Stele, was erected during the reign of the pharaoh Amos I. It was originally thought that his reign was in the mid-16th century BC, and the dates of this reign are hotly debated, but the importance of this being in the mid-16th century BC is that this stele might be telling us about the Thera eruption. This would put it around the time, right? It's a little later. It's sort of in the, the 16th century as the 1500s, but it would be contemporary too. They might Somebody who wrote this might have seen it or experienced it or had like a firsthand story of it. Yeah, or had met somebody who had witnessed it who is old now or something. The dates are very fuzzy here. And this redating has only kind of just happened and it is hotly debated, but it's super fascinating, particularly when you hear what, what this stele says and you listen to everything we've just talked about. So it is possible that this stele is telling us what the weather would have been like during this time period with all this fiery hail going on. So we're going to quote from the stele, and it's a little bit fragmented. Here's a quote from the stele describing the storm and its destruction. So Jen's going to read, I guess, where um, where there's a pause. So this is a really fragmented section. So we're going to read it to you as complete as we have it. Where we are missing something, we're going to say dot, dot, dot. That means that, like, the inscription, uh, the translation is incomplete. It's cut off somewhere. It can't be translated because it has been weathered or whatever. And that's just to give you a sense of what we're working with and what it looks like um, visually. Because when you're listening, you can think, oh, this all flows together. But it, it kind of doesn't. There's also places where um, translators have inserted things. And I think, Jen, do you want to read those too, just for continuity, so that you have a sense of where people have ins inserted things and assumed things, as opposed to just reading from the translation. All right, so here's a quote from the stele that describes the storm that they're talking about and its destruction. Quote, their discontent, dot, 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 the gods, made, the sky come with a tempest of, rain, it caused darkness in the western region, the sky was unleashed without, dot, 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 more than the roar of the crowd, dot, 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 was powerful, dot, 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 on the mountains more than the turbulence of the cataract, which is at Elephantine, each house, dot, 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 each shelter, or each covered place, that they reached, dot, 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 were floating in the water like the barks of papyrus, on the outside, of the royal residences for, days, dot, 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 with no one able to light the torch anywhere. Then his majesty said, how these, events, surpass the power of the great God and the wills of the divinities. And his majesty descended in his boat, his council following him. The people were at the east and the west silent, for they had no more clothes on them. Dot, dot, dot. After the power of the God was manifested. Then his majesty arrived in Thebes. Dot, dot, dot. This statue, it received what it had desired. 
His majesty set about to strengthen the two lands, to cause the water to evacuate without the aid of his men, to provide them with silver, with gold, with copper, with oil, with clothing, with all the products they desired, after which his majesty rested in the palace, life, health, strength. It was then that his majesty was informed that the funerary concessions had been invaded by the water that the sepulchral chambers had been damaged, that the structures of funerary enclosures had been undermined, that the pyramids had collapsed. All that existed had been annihilated. His Majesty then ordered the repair of the chapels which had fallen into ruins in all the country, restoration of the monuments of the gods, the re-erection of their precincts, the replacement of the sacred objects in the room of appearances, the reclosing of the secret place, the reintroduction. And that's where it cuts off. Yeah. So what we see here, in my opinion, is the aftermath of those incredible hailstorms and extreme weather that would have probably been in the living memory of the people who lived during the 16th century BC. This stele gives us a glimpse into what the people would have seen and experienced, including the collapse of their pyramids and so much damage. Fiery hail is extremely violent. I mean, hail in general is violent. So normal hell happens when chunks of ice get caught up in the rain cycle and fall to earth too quickly to thaw into rainwater. That's what you see when you get normal hail, right? What you're looking at here that would have happened was you would have had hail and also fiery hail, thunder, probably volcanic lightning, all happening at the same time. How does hail become fiery is my question, though. Like, I understand, like, chunks of pumice and, you know, fiery things. They could have been talking about pumice and hail at the same time and not knowing which was which because hail melts, but also pumice is, like, quite light and floats. Fiery pumice raining down on the earth, I think, is is a volcanic phenomenon, right? Absolutely. I don't know that it would have been raining down this far away, but who knows? Or it could have been fiery ash that was, you know, up in, you know, that was lighter. We don't know. Well, volcanoes throw ash up into the atmosphere. That ash goes a long way. And depending on the violence of the storm, you can see them all over the place. As I said, volcanoes often spawn epic lightning, and that is incredibly dangerous. Again, at this stage in the plagues, the picture we're getting is of an apocalyptic nightmare, most likely the trauma of a massive eruption and the fallout sweeping across the Mediterranean of northern Africa. And this brings us nicely to Jenny's second favorite plague, the locusts. I mean, it's just the most likely to put on a pizza, I think. (laughs) I'm keeping track here. So here's what Exodus has to tell us about the plague of locusts. Quote, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail and, of course, everything else, like the boils and the dead livestock and the frogs, etc., etc., including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your house and those of all your officials. (laughs) The officials! I just, I love the focus on the officials. And all the Egyptians something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land until now. I mean, I suspect the officials is code for, like, the people who have enslaved the Israelites and are sort of keeping that machine going. And that's why it's being mentioned so much. But who knows? 
I don't think God is particularly concerned about the plight of the Israelites, except in as much as they can't freely worship him. So I don't know. I don't know. He doesn't like the officials. He's not here for them. Not pleased with those officials. So <laughs> locusts in general really creep me out. They're really weird looking and they make this incredibly odd noise, which I think is a mating call. I remember hearing this weird locust mating noise a lot when we visited Corfu. And it's so eerie and it's so loud and it's so persistent. It sounds like the world is being fucked into submission by a horde of insects. I don't know. I think I think locusts are kind of cool. I mean, they're just kind of big grasshoppers, right? Like we had grasshoppers all over the place when I grew up in Vermont. They're, I just think they're cute. And this is a quote from the article in Life Science that we've been quoting from continuously. Quote, The volcanic eruption on Santorini may have created favorable conditions for the locusts, said Ciro Trevisanato, a Canadian molecular biologist and author of The Plagues of Egypt, Archaeology, History, and Science. Look at the Bible, which we've talked about before. The ash fallout causes weather anomalies, which translates into higher precipitations, higher humidity, Trevisanato told The Telegraph, and that's exactly what fosters the presence of the locusts. So this quote comes down on the side of the locust plague or swarm being an effect of the eruption. Locusts in this area of the world are normally solitary, meaning they don't move in swarms. But an epic volcanic eruption or climate change disaster, one that polluted the Nile and changed the climate from wet to dry, would also have an impact on the locusts. It would have changed how they behaved. Yeah, and the biomedical scientist article that we've also been quoting from tells us, quote, This could have created the conditions which caused the infamous desert locust to change from the solitary to the more gregarious form. Not only are they more sociable, but they change in appearance, becoming stronger, darker in color, and more mobile. They can swarm over long distances. And, according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, when they get hungry, a one-ton horde of locusts can eat the same amount of food in one day as 2,500 humans. Such a pestilence would devour all the remaining plants that the hail did not destroy. Just another reason to be creeped out by locusts, am I right? In all seriousness, though, what we're seeing here as the plagues progress is an environmental disaster. Whether it happened in the 1600s BC or maybe later in the 12 or 1300s BC, it is clear that this happened at some point or that it could have happened at some point. And to me, it's been forever recorded in this myth. The trauma of so many horrible events happening one after another shows that something wild was going on in the ecosystem. And we're not even done with the plagues yet. Still not done. Still not done. So let's move on to that penultimate plague, darkness. So once again, here is the quote from Exodus. Quote, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. So again, this plague really makes me feel like we're talking about a volcanic eruption. I mean, this one seems very clear here, right? Very clear. During volcanic eruptions, the ash cloud forms a plume, and the plume can reach up to several miles into the sky. And when the plume fans out, it blocks out the sun, bathing the land in darkness. To me, this, coupled with the other plagues, makes me firmly believe that we're looking at a myth describing a huge, world-changing volcanic eruption. But, I mean, we all know that I'm really biased towards this being a volcanic eruption story, so I will show my work, as well as the other theories. 
So the Plague of Darkness could have been caused by the volcanic eruption. The Thera eruption was hundreds of miles away, but it's not impossible that this eruption was so massive it did blot out the sun even as far away as Egypt. If the air was heavy with ash and dust, it would have been hard to see one another, and oxygen would have been lowered. So it's possible that candles or oil lamps may have even struggled to stay lit. Can you imagine a darkness so total you can't see each other? And you can't even light a fire. I mean, my gosh. No, because you need the oxygen, right? It's being sucked out. That's incredible. I mean, that must have been terrifying. And this is a tinfoil theory of mine, but it is based in science. It is. It is. I don't think it's that tinfoil. I mean, I don't see what's tinfoil about it. I mean, it might be a stretch that the Thera eruption had this effect so far away. That might be a stretch. I'm not sure. But like, I don't think it's unrealistic to say that it had this effect in some areas. And maybe some people who saw it happen in other areas, because people were traveling all throughout the Mediterranean, came to Egypt and talked about it, right? And then it could make it its way into this myth. Absolutely. The other theory that I've seen is that there might have been an eclipse. And while that is possible, there was an eclipse in the 1200s BC in the right area. I think this is much less likely to be the event this myth is talking about because it just doesn't feel like three days of darkness. That feels really visceral where you can't see anyone in front of you. Like you can't even light a candle. Like an eclipse is kind of feels a little anticlimactic, anti-eclipse. This does bring us to our epic grand finale. The last plague, the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt. For the last time in this episode, we're going to quote from Exodus, quote, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. The final plague harkens back to the beginning of Moses' story. He was saved from a culling of the firstborn Hebrews by his mother. And now God is going to kill all firstborn Egyptian boys. It's almost a tit for tat, right? Yeah, and that's why I kept that in the beginning of our story and didn't just launch straight into Moses coming into, into Egypt and demanding that his people be freed. Because this is one of those literary things we see, right? In, in mythology, there are there's this great great tradition of sort of framing devices. So to me, you have the framing device at the beginning of the calling of the firstborn Hebrew boys. And then at the end, you have the calling of the firstborn Egyptian boys. And I I wanted to keep that because I, I do think it's important to remember this is a story. It's a myth. Even though we can prove some of these things potentially happened, there is still a literary framework involved here. It's a myth that may have been based on real world events. That's what it is. So it, they are going to use, like, literary devices in telling this story. Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily negate the legitimacy that we might be seeing in the stuff that happened. It, it heightens it, it dramatizes it, and it makes this a more memorable story. It makes it easier to carry down through the oral tradition. Even though this was written down, it would have been oral for a lot of people who couldn't read it. And also for a long time before it was written down, Probably. Probably. So anyway, this part of the myth forms the basis for the story of Passover. Passover is a celebration of when God passed over the houses of the Israelites and saved their children from the angel of death, who killed all the firstborn children in Egypt. So how does this very specific and actually quite literary trope-filled plague fit in with the volcanic and climate change theory? Surprisingly well, actually. I love this part. It's fascinating. 
So there are two interesting theories about what might have caused this plague. The first has to do with a contamination of the grain that Egyptians ate. According to an article on Live Science, quote, Perhaps the algal bloom that turned the river's blood red released mycotoxins, poisonous substances that can cause disease and death in humans. According to a 2003 review in the journal Clinical Microbiology Reviews, grain contaminated with these mycotoxins could have been deadly and could explain the death of the firstborn children, said epidemiologist John Marr, who was the chief epidemiologist at the New York City Department of Health, as reported by Slate. The firstborn might have been the first to pick the grain, and thus would have fallen victim to it first as well, according to the Telegraph. So what this is telling us is that the firstborn sons got the choicest meals. They were given more to eat. They were given the freshest food and the first selection. This might have been what led to their downfall. In essence, they were given what was probably the most polluted or contaminated food. And this might explain why more men and boys were killed than women or enslaved people. Men and boys had better access to nutrition, and that would normally have been a good thing for their health. But in this case, it probably led to their death. And there are two suspect things that I want to share from a documentary I watched called The Exodus Decoded. And these are sus to me because I feel like the documentary is grounded in science, which is super fascinating, but it kind of felt like it had a real bent towards making the biblical story and history real. So with that in mind, I'm going to share these theories. At Avaris, an ancient town that was the Hyksos capital of Egypt, there are quite a few burial pits that are still being excavated. They recently excavated one with just loads of severed hands, which is really fun for me because, boy, do I love severed body parts. Let me tell you what. I sense Jenny writing a Patreon on these severed hands. Maybe. But there's also evidence of a burial pit from around the 1250s BC, so near the the ancient Bronze Age collapse or decline. Yeah, near the time when Pyramses was abandoned, which we talked about earlier. The city of Pyramses. Yeah, that contains mostly skeletons of young men. It looks like these bones might be linked to a plague based on the fact that they don't have, you know, physical trauma to them. They weren't caused by, like, violence or war. These bones may indicate that some kind of illness was in the area that primarily affected young men and boys. I mean, that's one theory. Like, another theory is that women died as well, but they just buried them or disposed of their remains differently. In a different pit? Yeah. Yeah, and I also think they are still excavating, so new research is coming up all the time. But here's something really interesting that Jen brought up. This is a second theory that goes back to something that she mentioned earlier and then didn't elaborate on because it was, you know, she's saving it for later. I'm saving it for later for the big reveal. Right. So the big reveal is the Lake Nyos eruption in Cambodia in 1986. This is a volcanic eruption. What can a modern volcanic eruption tell us about an ancient one? Well, quite a lot, as a matter of fact. You may be shocked to hear. Sometimes volcanic eruptions don't go off with a bang, but with a fizz. Lake Nyos is a volcanic lake, and the volcano is in fact under the lake, so it's under the water. Yeah, the lake is the caldera. Yeah, and when it erupted... People didn't actually know that it had erupted. This eruption was underwater. It wasn't all flashy fire, hail, and volcanic lightning and whatnot. There were no pyroclastic flows. Instead, what happened was there was an invisible and deadly low-clinging gas that rose from the lake and killed 1,746 people and 3,500 livestock in the area. People went to bed at night and simply didn't wake up the next morning. 
Scientists aren't sure what triggered this basically gassing. That's what it was. It might have been an eruption or maybe an earthquake or a landslide that released the poisonous gases. Like, they're not even sure if this was a volcanic eruption or something else that released all these gases. But either way, there were gases that came out of this lake, and they transformed the normally blue waters of the lake blood red. A column of foam, water, and gas rose from the lake to 330 feet high, spanning a massive wave at least 82 feet high that hit the shore. The gas from this deadly event spread low to the ground and crept towards nearby villages, about 14 miles away. Those who were sleeping near the ground never knew what hit them. The dense and poisonous gas paralyzed and suffocated them in their sleep. Those who were sitting up or sleeping away from the ground lived. So anyone sleeping in an elevated place. About 4,000 people survived this disaster and then fled the area. And they lived, but they, they had severe respiratory problems and things like that. There was a, a, a knock-on effect to surviving this. Now, the theory that the Exodus Decoded puts forward is that potentially something similar happened in Egypt. According to the theory, before the Thera eruption, and maybe after, dates are fuzzy, an earthquake storm occurred. So earthquake storms are a series of earthquakes along a fault line. The series of earthquakes releases the immense pressure in the fault as one plate goes under the other. That's tectonic plates. Yes. And in this area, I believe it would be the African-European plate, maybe? Mediterranean-African? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly which these two plates are. There's a lot of volcanoes in this region because of this um, shifting and moving of the plates. So what they think might have happened is sometimes when, when this happens, you get earthquakes, underwater earthquakes, sometimes you'll get tsunamis or landslides, and sometimes you'll get volcanic eruptions. Sometimes unseen gases can be released into the water and the atmosphere. Is that what happened here? Did the Nile turn red because of a toxic gas from an underwater earthquake near a volcano? And if so, why would this plague only affect the firstborn male children? Well, the Exodus Decoded claims that Egyptian male children slept in low beds, beds that were barely raised off the floor. And these beds were status symbols. Second-born male children, girls, women, enslaved people, they all slept on roofs or in wagons or in some other elevated position, not near to the ground. Now, if this was the case, a low-lying gas that stays on the floor could easily have been able to kill the male children and leave the others alone. Because this gas dissipated the higher up it went and became less toxic. Again, this theory I've only seen in this one documentary, but it is so fascinating and it is based in science, so I just had to mention it. It's possible, right? We, we have evidence of it happening in other places. And I've not done a deep dive into how ancient Egyptian people slept. And I don't know that this documentary knows how they slept all the time throughout all periods of Egyptian history. It's just a theory they put forth. It's really fascinating. It's interesting that that might be the case. Or it might have been the case at one time and then it somehow made, made its way into this story. Yeah, it might be now explaining why they don't sleep low to the ground anymore. You know, right? This might be uh, something else in that mythology. So did the 10 plagues of Egypt actually happen? It's doubtful. But do the 10 plagues of Egypt preserve in mythology the psychic trauma of a world-changing event? In my opinion, absolutely. And was that event the fear of volcanic eruption? Well, you can decide for yourself. What do you think, Jenny? Absolutely it was. I 100% <laughs> think it was. I'm 100% I'm team volcano here. 
<laughs> I love it when I have a volcano convert. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, decide for yourselves, you guys, but that's what I think. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. In the meantime, find us on social media at Ancient Hist Fan, on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl, on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. And join our Patreon. This is what enables us to keep doing this podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl where we delve into extra episodes that we didn't get time for on the main feed and all kinds of other extra stuff that you get. We have one patron to thank and we are so grateful for all of our new patrons. In particular, we're grateful to Sarah, who has recently joined our wild mainad party over on Patreon. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. 